There is a God. There's only one true God. And he is the stunningly generous creator of everything. And this God, this majestic, wild creator, he's the source of all delight and all all the things that are lovely and lively and liberating. You, You know the beauty of a sunset? That's the work of the creator. About a year ago, Zeke was over at my house and Zeke is the uh, artist who made this table and the baptismal font and the doors. He's a part of our church. He's in the nursery today. So he told me I didn't have to preach that good on my way in. He said, I won't be there. So just, it doesn't matter what you say. (laughs) About a year ago, Zeke said something more true than that. Um, He was, we were standing on my porch and we were chatting about something and the sun was setting. And um, there was this luminous blue light. And Zeke said, oh, I I love the blue of a sunset. And I'd never noticed it, but it was. You know how gray has lots of different forms and there's this kind of blue tint. to It was there. And, And Zeke, he pointed it out to me. He opened my eyes to it. What I'm saying is that the strange beauty and power that we sense in a sunset and starlight in the majesty of a mountain or the tiny perfection of the smallest flower insect, all of this is the work of the creator. Do you guys know Russ Coors? Are the Coors here? They're sick. Oh, Russ loves rocks. And he loves stars. He's a science teacher and he kind of specializes in the two. He gets these grants periodically to go and look through giant, enormous telescopes that our federal government owns. And he loves seeing the glorious sweep of our vast universe. Then there's Anita Cooper. I hope you've met her too. She's another artist in our church and she is a tremendously accomplished watercolorist. We've had a number of her Watercolors hanging here. Her paintings are remarkably, artfully, lovingly capture this intricate detail of her favorite plant. Anybody know? No? Bromeliads. Her favorite plant. Clothes. She does magnolias too. She went to, to South America for a while and painted, illustrated a whole book of bromeliads. God, the one true God, he made this universe in its vast sweep and in its tiny perfections. Now, why did he do this? Why did God create this amazing world? It wasn't out of need. No, he created it out of love. He made the world Not because he was forced to by some need. He made it because his inmost nature is generous, exuberant love. God is not an object in our universe. We are objects in his universe. And if that's true, that is what makes sense of the layer upon layer of wonder and delight and beauty and joy that comes to us through our natural world. 
We're not drifting alone, alone in some meaningless cosmic game of flux. No, the power behind the cosmos is not blind chance and it's not brute force. It's love, a delighted love that celebrates the goodness and the specialness of every part of this universe. In Genesis 1, when God is creating, seven times he stops and he celebrates the goodness. He celebrates it. He holds it in his loving embrace. He says, look at that. Man, that's beautiful. Man, that's good. Man, that's lovely. This God, his love... That is the force in our universe. It's a love that cares about the smallest creature and the farthest star. And it's a love that made one creature out of all of his creation unique. One creature he made in a special way to share in this capacity to receive and to give love. To share uniquely in the work of this creator. This work of drawing out of the world all of its goodness. All of its potential. God has given humans. He's given us this incredible role to play. The Bible says we're made in his image. We're made in the image of love. With this tremendous capacity to receive and give love. And to steward this enormously complex An utterly pregnant with potential universe. And yet, somehow, in some calculus that we can't compute, our rebellion against the creator has vandalized the beauty of this creation. It's perverted the justice. It's drawn all of creation into the mutiny Of the human race. And somehow, some way, evil infects the good creation. Twisting it. Now the Bible doesn't tell us where evil came from. It doesn't give us the the location of evil. The origin of evil. It's this mysterious thing that's there. Now the Bible is clear. God doesn't make evil. And evil's not an entity. It's a twisting, a directing, a pulling away from God and his good purposes. And in this world of beauty and power and sunsets and starlight, there is also another theme. Violence and bloodshed and destruction. This is not a universe only of beauty. You know that. On every level, from wars... To cancer, there are creatures, a lot of them, who live as parasites. And it seems their whole reason for existence is to eat their host alive from within. So we experience this world that is both full of dazzling goodness and horrific evil. Filled with love and hate. This world that is both beautiful and ugly. It has life and it has death. Our world is both good and broken. Our world wholly belongs to God, and yet the cancerous tentacles of sin invade every square inch of this universe. So what has this wild, almighty, majestic God done in response to the shattering of his creation? Well, the Bible is a story not only of God the creator, but of God the rescuer. 
The same God who created all things, who created everything good and true and beautiful. That same God has not abandoned this world. He's not far off past Pluto like some deistic perception of God. This God has done something to heal this world. The Bible is the story of God dealing with evil. And it's a long and complex story. I mean, as evidenced by the fact that did you listen to the reading from Daniel? If you're, not, if you're not familiar with that passage, if you didn't have a sense of where it was and what place it plays in the big story, you might have found yourself at a moment there thinking, whoa, that was weird. Where did that? The Bible is not simple. It is, it, the, the overall picture of it is simple. It's foolproof. There is a God. He made all things. He loves everything. He's making it new. But man, when you dive into the details of it, it can be very intimidating, quite disorienting, and absolutely beyond the reach. But at the same time, complexity never disqualifies something from being true. This story of the Bible, this story of God dealing with evil, it finds its breathtaking and exhilarating climax in the life of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. This stunningly generous God, this God who is the source of all delight, of all that is lovely, of blue sunsets and striking bromeliads. This God who is filled Utterly with love, just love that we can't imagine. Grace to the core, this God of utterly self-giving love. He has given himself to us by taking on flesh and entering into this good but broken creation. And this is Jesus Christ. Just look at Jesus in the Gospels. What does he do? What does this love do when he's faced with broken limbs and broken lives? We've been reading through Mark's account of the life of Jesus. What what does this love in flesh do? He healed people. Over the last few weeks, we've been reading through Mark's gospel. We've seen that he healed people who suffered from all kinds of diseases and ailments. Look at Jesus in the gospels and you are looking at God taking charge of his world once again. Taking it back from evil. That's what you see when you look at Jesus in the Gospels. When you look at Jesus in the Gospels, you see this infinitely vast creator coming into his creation and launching his plan to sort it all out, to fill this world with his glory and his goodness and his justice and his beauty until it says in the Bible, until all of that covers the whole world like water covers the sea. Look at Jesus and you'll see the creator has entered into his tragically broken creation to confront the ancient sickness that has crippled the world, including us humans. Look at Jesus in these gospels and you see the work of new creation. When you see the sick healed, the broken mended, the overwhelmed set free, you are seeing God becoming king of the world just think about it it is like a king going into a city and sorting things out with his authority his power and his resources when you look at jesus and he's healing and he's doing these things you are seeing the creator becoming king 
of the world. And when you see individuals healed, mended, you're not only seeing God becoming king once again, you're seeing what that looks like up close and personal. In these amazing gospel stories, we see what the kingdom of God is like, not only on a cosmic level, but on individual lives. So back to Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Just a fancy word, literally, the good news. Proclaiming, I mean, isn't everything I just said good news? Isn't this good news? I mean, isn't it a good thing that the creator who made it good and true and beautiful and great, and isn't it a good thing for him to come back and to sort it out? So Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That's the good news. The good news is that God is once again becoming king, sorting it out. And then over and over, we see Jesus not only saying that, teaching what it means, because it's hard to wrap your mind around. It's so complex. It it crashes into all of our preconceived ideas about what religion is and who God is. It's so difficult. Three years of God himself in the flesh trying to teach people, and yet somehow still those listening to him every day get to the end, and it's still not making sense to them. This is hard stuff. It's hard because of the power of a plausibility structure, because of the power of our precons, our culture's way of construing things. And so here is Jesus over and over teaching, but not only teaching. Notice what he does when a crowd shows up at his house. What does he do? He teaches. That's why teaching is at the heart of Christianity. It's still needed today. But he not only teaches, he puts his teaching into practice. Not only does he say, God, king, is coming, sorting it all out, when there's a brokenness in front of him, he actually does that. Why? Because the teaching is not an abstract principle. The teaching is about a fact, that the kingdom is at hand. And so then the kingdom breaks in. It really is at hand. When you read the Gospels, you see Jesus the king bringing his kingdom of life and love and liberation and justice and beauty. You see him bringing his kingdom to an old man here and a young girl there and a dying slave boy and a hemorrhaging woman. He lets this power of creative love flow out of him in all directions. And this morning in our gospel reading, in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we see what happens when this creative love encountered a man who was overwhelmed with the weight of his own moral failings. Let me say it again. When we get to the story that we read this morning, we see the king has entered his creation. What happens when the creator, who is love you can't imagine, all the way to the core, what happens when he encounters this man? What we are seeing is what happens when creative love encountered a man who was overwhelmed with the weight of his own failures. You know what happens? This generous love of the creator overflows in forgiveness. Now, isn't that amazing? That the the wild, infinite God, power beyond anything you can imagine, at the core of him, 
at his inmost part, it is love. And when you encounter him, it is love. This house that Jesus was in, it appears to me that it was Jesus' own house. I mean, right? Did you read chapter 2, verse 1? And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So here's Jesus. It appears to me in his own house. He's been on a short preaching trip. Word's gotten out. Huge crowd shows up. How would you feel in this situation? If you were the unlucky homeowner and someone made a big hole in your roof. See, I think that's at the literary level. I think that's the drama. Right? Not only are there a lot of... Some of you get so stressed out over crowds in your house, you never even have crowds to your house. All right, just amp that up another notch. They cut a hole in your roof. You know, at the beginning, you know, at the Hobbit, you know, when Bill Bowes, he's in his own little Hobbit hole, and here comes all the dwarves, right? That great scene where they're eating everything. It just drives him crazy. You know, that's you. You know, some of you freak out when people walk in your... Can you imagine a hole in the roof? And what does Jesus do? He looks down at this man lying on the stretcher, and he says, all right, I forgive you. I mean, I think in the moment, he was like... (laughs) Yeah, you just cut a hole in my roof. And I forgive you. But there's something in his voice that made everyone realize this forgiveness went deeper than a peccadillo. Deeper than a domestic dispute. Jesus was speaking with quiet authority. And it went all the way down into the paralyzed man. Into his inmost being. Apparently this man's wrongdoings. Had reduced him. To paralysis. Apparently there was some relationship. Between his. Broken state. And his sin. Now. Jesus gives this man forgiveness. And look at the power of it. This. Ointment of forgiveness. It goes down to the hidden roots of his personality. Gently healing the old, long buried hurts. Do you believe that forgiveness is possible? Do you? Do you believe it's possible for you? To be forgiven? Do you believe it's possible for others to be forgiven? You know, do you believe this is possible? What if the story I'm telling you is true? What if the creator really is stunningly generous? What if this whole story, what if this whole vast picture I've been painting this morning, what if it's true? What if the God is love at the center? Sheer, generous, exhilarating, nuclear love. What if the essence of God is love? What what if the gratuitous beauty of sunlights is the gratuitous love of God? What if the the amazing uh, attention to detail in bromeliads and the bumblebee? What if that? Is the handiwork 
of a creator that loves infinitesimally and cosmically. What if the stunningly generous and attentive creator of all things is the same God who is the rescuer? What if the creator is the redeemer? What if the maker of all is Jesus Christ? Then do you see forgiveness is possible? What if the force at the center of reality is love? There are plenty of people in this room who've heard that word forgiveness from Jesus. And we know in our own selves, it's creative power. I'm sure I could stop right now. And we could have a big old tear fest of people sharing stories of when they were really forgiven by this creator. There are plenty of us in this room who know the creative power of God, not just the breaking power of God. There's something about forgiveness. You see, it doesn't just bring us back to the starting line, like somebody who's run up a huge debt and now discovers the debt is paid off. Forgiveness is more than that. Forgiveness somehow puts a whole new deposit in your account. It unlocks the knowledge that after all, you are full and fully valued as a human being. And that you no longer need to regard yourself as a hopeless failure. And that news, it opens up in a whole new way in your life to become the person God wanted you to be all along. This free gift of forgiveness, right? Totally free, right? I mean, didn't do anything, right? I mean, if there's ever anybody who didn't do anything, it's a paralyzed guy whose friends dug the hole and lowered him down. Like, what resistance could he have done? Right? That's the whole point of his paralysis, right? He could have shouted at him, maybe, unless his mouth was paralyzed. But this guy had nothing to do with this. And here is forgiveness, this free gift of forgiveness. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He didn't make up for his sin. He didn't work his sin off. Somehow this forgiveness and it opens up a new world for this guy and it invites him to make this new world his own. And this is one of the key elements in the good news that Jesus, the king of creation, has returned and he's canceling out evil. Isn't forgiveness the most remarkable deliverance from evil? Isn't forgiveness delivering me from evil? And when I forgive you, aren't I delivering myself from being wrapped up in the evil that your sin against me has drawn me into? So the purpose of Jesus' life was to announce and launch God's kingdom in and through Jesus. The creator has taken charge of the world. But how has he taken charge of it? Not with power and missiles and armies and, and guns, but with love and forgiveness. He's grasping the world in a new way. The way of forgiveness. Jesus didn't deal with every illness he encountered as if it was an illness that resulted from sin. But we know through remarkable medicine and the remarkable insights of Freud and Jung and all who've stood on their shoulders. We know today 
That there are deep bodily illnesses rooted in deep wounds within a person. And we also know there's other kinds of illnesses. Jesus didn't treat them all this way. Christianity is not simplistic. It's not naive. But he treated this guy this way. How would he treat you? Are you paralyzed by your moral failure? Have you done something wrong that you can't get over? There is a God. And he is love. Sheer love. Love to the very core of his being. And he offers you forgiveness. Not just cancel the debt. Put a huge deposit in the account on top of that. Will you open the deep places of your life to this God? Why wouldn't you? What do you really have to lose? Those who accept God's invitation to God's party on God's terms, they will celebrate the feast of forgiveness. And part of our job is to draw on that forgiveness. To enjoy the taste of it. To savor it. And to become for the world. Agents of forgiveness. In our personal lives. We need to open our hearts to Jesus. And draw on his life and love and power. And go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And forgive those. Who sin against us. And lead our workplaces. And our jobs. And our vocations. And our institutions. And the spheres that we move in. Lead them into a new economy. An economy of love. And forgiveness. Now this is difficult. And it is massively complex. How Aaron and Scott. Are going to lead a justice system. That thinks the root is an eye for an eye. How do we leave our. Insane justice system. Into an economy of forgiveness. Very complex. We have to pray for them. How do our financial institutions work on an economy of love? What does that mean for a banker? Very complex. But if a banker doesn't work it out there. Then he's just bought into a religion that's reduced to piety. What does it mean for moms and dads? For college students, for teachers to work out this forgiveness. Well, it's difficult and it's complicated. It is definitely not the same thing as tolerance. Tolerance is a cheap, watered-down, Kool-Aid version of forgiveness. Worse, it's a Kool-Aid laced with strychnine. It is not the same. It's not even close to the same. And forgiveness is not the same as inclusivity. And it's not the same as indifference or sweeping something under the rug or just forgetting the thing that was done to you. Keep reading the Gospels. Clearly, forgiveness has bite to it. And clearly, it's not tolerance and indifference and inclusivity. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't take the thing done against you seriously. No, you do. Forgiveness is taking it most seriously. You name it. You shame it. And without that, there is no forgiveness. And then you do everything in your power to resume an appropriate relationship with the offender after the evil has been dealt with. 
And you settle in your mind that you will not allow evil to determine the sort of person that you will be. This is what forgiveness is all about. Very complicated. Very tough. Tough. Tough to do. Tough to receive. And tough in the sense that once it's really happened, forgiveness is tough. Unlike soggy tolerance, forgiveness is tough. It holds the line. Unlike, unlike inclusivities taking the line of least resistance. This is hard. It's hard to wrap our mind around. It's hard to know the difference between forgiving something and ignoring something. It's hard to know what forgiveness means when someone keeps on sinning against you. But there are resources. First of all. When you accept the forgiveness of God in Jesus for your own sins, you can draw down on that source. You can draw it down into your life. You can open your heart to that life-giving love. And that can become a reservoir inside of you that flows out to others. Second, you have a Christian community. This church can help you forgive. There are godly, wise, and mature people in this church. And there are also ungodly and unwise and immature people in this church. Be careful who you go to. And age is not the determining factor. You can draw on this church. This church can help you forgive. There are people in this church who have been forgiving for many years. And they have real wisdom for the complicated, complex, concrete realities of forgiveness in the real world. And third, you have a priest. This is my area of specialty. I'm not a psychologist. I've referred lots of people in our church to counselors. But I'm your priest. My job is to work with you. In forgiveness. Let me do that. Let Kevin do that. That's part of what it means to be a pastor. One of the wonderful gifts of Anglicanism is that we have a wonderful rite of penance. It is a beautiful and ancient and wise ritual for naming your own sin, asking God to forgive you, and receiving his healing and generous love. If you are stuck... Set up an appointment with me. Let's walk through. Let's draw, let's draw on thousands of years of wisdom that the church has to offer, that priests are trained in. Let's use this to lead you to forgive someone and yourself. I'll close with this. You notice when Jesus did this, it sent a shockwave through the room. Suddenly everything shifted from the guy to a conflict. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus' unexpected declaration of forgiveness sent a shockwave. It wasn't simply that he was um, committing a theological crime. The hole in his own roof was nothing compared to the hole he was tearing through the system of that society. 
And the conflict this generated with the lawyers, the scribes, it doesn't stop. In fact, this is the first of five conflict stories told in a row, culminating in chapter 3, verse 6, where these same scribes say, that's it, we're going to murder him. Forgiveness for Jesus came at a cost. So funny, last week's story, he didn't want the guy to make public right about what he was doing because he was doing temple stuff and he knew when he did temple stuff, he'd be picking a fight. Talk about temple stuff. Forgiveness. And so in this moment, the fight started that was his death warrant. And it didn't take long. You see, somehow the creative and recreated love of which he, Jesus, was doing his work. Somehow, Jesus, by bringing this into the world, he was taking all of the anti-creation forces at work in the world. All the forces of hatred and fear and decay and death. He was drawing them on himself. And as we'll see in a few weeks, it's ultimately at the cross. That he draws them deeply into himself and he absorbs them and it kills him. This is the focus of the good news we call the gospel. The good news that God's kingdom is at hand comes to a head in the utterly, catastrophically, appallingly bad news of Jesus' death. It is in his death that evil is ultimately Confronted and dealt with. In Jesus' death, evil is mysteriously. C.S. Lewis calls it the deep magic. All our theories of atonement, they don't do it justice. This is not merely, this is not about a God that's mad and so he's going to pick a victim and he picks the most innocent one and clobbers him. If that's your view of this story, would you please repent? Don't make God out that way. There is something deeper here. Yes, there is wrath, but there is something deeper going on here. This is not, the story of the Bible is not the story of an angry God. That's not where, it's the story of a loving God who hates evil because evil is destroying his good creation. And yes, he defeated it. But like a mad animal trapped in a corner whose demise is near, It continues to strike out. But one day, as we heard in Revelation 5, he will return and he will say no more. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And our prayer we pray every Sunday, deliver us from evil, will be fully and finally and irrevocably and utterly in every square inch of this universe and your life, it will be answered. And yet in the meantime, because of the mystery of the cross, God forgives. And that forgiveness releases us from our burdens of guilt. So we can rise up from our own pallets of paralysis. Having received God's forgiveness, we we can draw on that and we can take that into the world. That's our vocation. Your job. Your teacher. It's not just to be a good person at the job. It's not just to do your job well. But it's to say what would education look like if it's run on an economy of forgiveness. And your job as a mom and a dad and a housewife and a lawyer and a businessman is to make 
forgiveness, the economic backbone of your, of your labors. And when you do, there will be a price to pay. Because our society and many individuals have vested interest and in an economy not of love, but of debt and repayment. And so when we go into our vocations as Christians should, Jesus has shown the way. If any man would follow me, let him take up his cross. You see, Jesus going to the cross doesn't mean you don't have to go to a cross. It just means that he will be there with you as one who has already been there. And you can draw down on that. You can draw on that in the power of the Spirit. And you can go not with flimsy tolerance or shallow inclusivity. But with the naming and shaming and releasing power of genuine forgiveness. And as we do this, whatever your job, you must discover the resources to sustain such dangerous work. You've, every vocation has to discover the spirituality appropriate to that vocation. I, you can't adopt my spirituality. My rhythm, it's that of a monk and a priest. That's my job. What does the spirituality of a homemaker look like? Of a teacher, of a business person? You guys have to figure this out. You have to discover the resources to sustain you. And you've got to discover the practices that can sustain you in the costly work of the kingdom of God. Let's pray.